Welcome to Politics Plus, conversations about American politics, economics, history, and culture. I'm your host, Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Tally Sherritt, director of the Effective Brain Lab and an associate professor of cognitive neuroscience in the Department of Experimental Psychology at University College London. Dr. Sherritt's research integrates neuroscience, behavioral economics, and psychology to study how emotion influences people's beliefs, decisions, and social interactions. She's the author of The Optimism Bias and, most recently, The Influential Mind, What the Brain Reveals About Our Power to Change Others. Tally Sherrod, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You know, at the beginning of The Influential Mind, you you tell a story. Uh, It's about your reaction to an exchange about vaccines and autism between, at the time, presidential candidates Ben Carson and Donald Trump. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it was about how they approached their topic and also your, really, your immediate reaction to those approaches that, that struck you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's really an anecdote that um, really clearly illustrates one of the main themes of, of the recent book, The Influential Mind, which is this kind of tension between data um, and facts and then emotion, on the other hand. Sometimes they go together and sometimes they don't. So, yes, I tell the story um, of me being in, in my living room watching the um, the presidential um, debate, um, the Republican presidential debate between, and at the time, you know, when I was watching, on one hand, there was Dr. Ben Carson, and on the other hand was Donald Trump, the now president. And they were talking about immigration and taxes and so on. And then the conversation uh, drifted to the issue on whether childhood vaccines are related to autism. And the moderator turned to Ben Carson and he said, uh, to Ben Carson, he said, well, Donald Trump often says that there is a link between childhood vaccines and and autism. You're a pediatric surgeon, a doctor. What what do you have to say? And so Ben Carson said, well, there are many, many studies showing that there is no link between the two. And he turned to Donald Trump and he said, he's an intelligent guy. That's his words. Um, He will make the right decisions once he has the facts, when he once he read the studies. Um, And then the moderator turns to to Donald Trump and he says, well, what what do you have to say? And Donald Trump says, well, I had an employee and the employee had a small baby and the baby went to get vaccines and um, it was a horse-sized syringe, went into the little baby and the baby got very, very ill um, and eventually um, had autism. And I was sitting there, um, in fact, with my eight-week-old son at the time, who was, he was my second child. And I'm a neuroscientist, and I know all about the data, um, and my first child was vaccinated. But I felt quite anxious listening to Donald Trump telling this story. Um, and there were kind of alarm bells going on in my head saying, well, maybe I need to think about this again. Should I really vaccinate my child? Um, I was quite, quite stressed about it. On one hand, there was this kind of a voice in my head saying, well, you know what the data is. You know what the truth is. And on the other hand, I said, well, you know, who knows? This, this is quite a quite a story. Um, and Ben Carson's, um, you know, what, what he said, it was nothing new because I already knew the studies. So he wasn't telling me anything new. Um, and Donald Trump, on the other hand, was telling me something new. It was a story. And stories are usually unique. You often don't hear the exact same story twice. 
And also it created this emotional reaction to me in me. And emotional reactions usually grab your attention. If something is emotional, um, it means that you're usually focusing on it, focusing on whatever the, whoever the speaker is and what they're saying. And it also enhances your memory. And it had much more of an effect. Um, eventually, I, you know, my son was vaccinated and kind of I, I, I understood what was happening to me and I, I made the right decision. But um, it's a question of how did this exchange affect all the other viewers and many viewers who perhaps don't know the studies as well and perhaps didn't make decisions about, you know, didn't have other kids that they already made the decision on. Were they influenced by Ben Carson or were they influenced by Donald Trump? And could it be that Ben Carson could have done a better job at conveying his truth? Um, and I think one of the problems with with Ben Carson's approach was that it's especially problematic to just give dry facts and figures when you're trying to convince someone with a different opinion. So, you know, if Ben Carson is trying to convince anyone who's already thinking, well, I think there is a relationship between autism and vaccines, and he's just saying, well, there's many studies showing that there isn't, what we know from many studies is also that that doesn't work very well. If you just give the facts and the figures, it doesn't work on its own because what people tend to do quite quickly, they tend to rationalize away those figures and facts in the science. They try to, they find reasons of why what you're telling is not quite right and is not maybe re relevant and they bring to mind their own evidence for what they already believe to be true. So, so that's kind of the, 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 the first story uh, from the book. Um, and, you know, it, it highlights a lot of different issues in trying to change people's beliefs and convincing them about what's right, from facts and figures to emotions to stories um, to how our brain reacts to all that information. Yeah, you know, because when I, I guess I would have reacted, well, I don't know how I would have reacted because I didn't have an eight-week-old at the time, but I, I'm the sort of person, I think, who maybe tends to be a little more interested in the facts and the figures and data. And maybe it's just me, but I think sometimes when I try to persuade other people, I often find myself defaulting to doing it in terms of what would persuade me, if that makes any sense. And, and I'm guessing mm -hmm. maybe that's not the best strategy, right? Well, I think Ben Carson was doing exactly the same thing. He's a, he's a doctor and he's a scientist. And so he was conveying um, the information as a way that would convince him, right? That he believed will be convincing for him, which is facts and figures. And here's the thing about, about you know, numbers and, and facts and, and, and figures is it it's very, very important for uncovering the truth, right? I'm a scientist. This is what I do. I collect data and then I try to uncover the truth and that's the way to uncover the truth. But on its own, it's not enough to change beliefs of people who already hold strong beliefs that are different. If what you're trying to do is you're trying to convince someone who doesn't really have an, a strong belief the other way, you know, they, or they have a very similar worldview as you do, then it could work quite well. But when you're trying to convince someone who has a strong belief in the other direction, that's where you have the challenge. And the other challenge in this case was that Ben Carson didn't have a lot of time and he didn't have, you know, right. PowerPoints and stuff. He had, he had two minutes um, or even less. And we know from, from Daniel Kahneman's work um, and his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, that it makes a difference if we have to, to kind of listen to, to information quickly and make a decision or we have some time. When, when we have to make um, 
judgments fast, then our emotion has more of an effect. Our instinct has more of an effect. Our heuristics have more of an effect. When you have a bit more time to consider the evidence, then in some cases, um, you know, your kind of so-called rational thinking may have more of a weight. Now, there, there are some studies, if I understand this correctly, that say that if I'm trying to convince somebody, uh, to convince them out of a view, I guess you could say, and, and I present my, carefully present my facts and figures and so forth, it could, I might not only not convince them, even if I have good data, it, this might actually boomerang on me and they can end up with even more certain or be even more certain about their own position, which seems bizarre to me. Um, could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so that's called the backfire effect, and that happens sometimes. Um, and there was a famous study um, quite a, for quite a while now where they brought people in um, and they asked them about their opinions about um, capital punishment. And then they, they gave them um, one of two studies. One study was suggesting that it is a good solution for different reasons, maybe saving saving money um, um, in prisons and so on, and another study suggesting that it's not a good solution for, for whatever reasons. And they had to read one of these studies that was assigned to them, um, one of these papers, and then they had to, again, convey their, their um, opinion on the matter. And what they found is that quite a few people actually became um, more stronger in their prior opinion. They, they felt more confident in their prior opinion, even if the study that they were just reading went against their initial position. And the reason is that while reading this study, they came up with new reasons why their initial position was correct, it, reasons that they didn't think about before. Um, and partly this is because they had to defend their own opinion. So they came in with an opinion, then someone comes in with some reasons why you're wrong, and then you kind of automatically try to defend it. Even if it's in your mind, you try to defend your initial opinion, coming up with new reasons of why you're right and, you know, this study is wrong, things that you haven't thought about before. And it turns out that this tendency, which is a sort of confirmation bias, um, is actually, if anything, more prominent, pre- prevalent in uh, people who are high on math and analytical skills. So a beautiful study from Don Kahan at Yale um, showed exactly that. What he did is he took 1,000 Americans and he gave them math tests. And based on this math test, he divided them into those with high math and analytical abilities and those with low math and analytical abilities. And then he gave them two sets of data. The first set of data, he said, is looking at whether skin uh, treatment is helping skin rash. And he asked everyone, please look at the data, analyze the data, and tell me whether this new treatment is working. So people did that, and not surprisingly, those with better math and analytical skills did better. Then he gave them another set of data, and this set of data, they said, is looking whether gun control laws are reducing crime. So please look at the data, analyze the data, and tell me whether gun control is reducing crime. Now, the difference here is that people had very strong opinions about gun control. Some people were for and some people were against. And these opinions interfered with their ability to analyze the data in an objective manner. And in fact, those with better math and analytical skills, relatively speaking, did worse because they were using their skills, not necessarily to find the truth, 
but to find fault with the data that they weren't happy with. So this kind of idea that these type of biases and 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 the fact you know and people who don't listen to facts and figures are the the least intelligent. That's not true at all. You can see that you know in in most people. Um, and if anything, you can definitely see these tendencies in people who actually have quite high analytical skills. Wow. That's, you know, and it makes me wonder, because, of course, for forever, basically, uh, philosophers and others have said, well, you know, we have this desire for the truth. We seek out the truth. Right. We treasure it. But yet it seems like, and I've read some research, I think, in evolutionary psychology suggesting that, well, no, it's not truth we want. It's we want our beliefs, we want our arguments to to win, essentially. Whether they're true or not, that's kind of a secondary thing. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, I think you are. I mean, we we, we definitely have a desire for knowledge. Um, and we also have a desire for truth, but we also have a desire at the same time um, to to kind of confirm our own beliefs and um, to enhance our confidence in those beliefs. And we don't like uncertainty or things being muddy. Um, and sometimes these different desires clash. And I think what research show, shows is that when they do clash, on average, our tendency to see ourselves as correct often wins. Well, and, and you know, I, it's weird. I felt this personally. I mean, I'm, one of the things I tell listeners all the time is it's super important to engage, seriously engage with opposing views. And, and I do this, I try mm-hmm. to do it every day, but there are certain columnists or certain columns, I'll read them and I'll disagree. And I, I swear to you, it actually feels physically difficult and painful for me to get through some of their articles. I mean, is, is that, am I weird or what? No, because it elicits emotions, right? You read those different views, and it can be anything from politics to scientific theories uh, to things, you know, ideas about gender and about parenting and everything, really. And you read these different views, and it creates emotions. Some, for some people, it's anger, right? Or maybe it's this kind of anxiety and stress, um, which probably is, is a better reaction because you're thinking, well, maybe I'm wrong. So that's right. that's the start, right? Um and perhaps fear, and you know, there's all of these different emotions that arise because um, beliefs and emotions they go together. You can't really separate them. And so, this idea that we can evaluate um, data and we can evaluate the truth without it being connected to some kind of motivation and feeling um, in itself is is probably something that we want to be true, but it's not true. Yeah. Well, you know, I, when I listen to, well, what passes for political discourse these days, it seems like when, when people are trying to make a point or argue with another side, they, it seems like they automatically start by focusing on and, ex- and accentuating their differences rather than sort mm-hmm. of saying, well, okay, what do we share in common and what are our shared goals right. and so forth? I, I'm wondering, is there, is there a good reason for this? Why people do this? Why they do that? Well, I think they do it because um, it is the salient, what's salient, right? When I, I'm kind of thinking, when I'm reading your view, it, it kind of pops to me that what we disagree about this issue. Right. And I, I, I focus less on what we have in common because maybe it's more, it's, it's obvious, right? Um, we're both humans. We both have basic desires that are the same, and that's kind of obvious, and I don't need to focus on it. But when you interact with people, you usually 
you know, if someone uh, is very different from you in some kind of respect, that is that is kind of highlighted in your mind. And you're absolutely true. You're absolutely right that it is important to always engage by starting um, with the notion of what actually do we have in common rather than what do we have that is different. And if we start with that notion, we will be more likely, in fact, to convince people. And this is um, a study that I mentioned in the book where we brought people into the lab and we wanted to see what happens um, in their brains when they disagree and when they agree with another person. And so they came into the lab and we asked them to make decisions together about the value of real estate. It doesn't really matter. It's just we had to, to choose something. So they made decisions about the value of real estate and they were making those decisions while we were scanning the activity in their brain in two brain imaging scanners, but they could communicate over the Wi-Fi. So what we found was when two people agreed about the value of the real estate, each person's brain activity suggested that it was um, encoding the information coming from the agreeing partner quite well. And people became more confident in their judgment, right? Because the other person is agreeing with me, so I become more, more confident. But when two people disagreed, it looked like the brain, metaphorically speaking, was shutting down and wasn't encoding the information coming from the disagreeing partner. And what happened to people's views in their own uh, decision? The, their confidence didn't go much, uh, didn't go down much. Well, maybe a tiny bit, but not a significant amount. So they kind of stuck to their judgment and just disregarded the other person who was agreeing. Um, so what this suggests is that if we want people to encode what we're saying, to listen to us, to pay attention, we want them to come from from a point of view where there's something that we agree with them, right? That we agree with them on some issue, that there's something that we have in common because then they're more likely to engage and to listen to what we have to say. But if you come in from the very beginning saying, well, I disagree and here are all my reasons, the person on the other end is either not listening to you at all or is thinking in their mind why you're wrong while you're talking, right? Um, and and so and so this is one of the reasons why, why we do want to start with what's com- what we have in common and not why we disagree. Now, there's a, well, there's a difference, it seems to me, between getting someone just to agree with you, and that's great, but, but also then getting them to actually act on a belief, whether, you know, that might mean volunteering, protesting, or, you know, for some people, even voting is, would be a lot. Um, what do we know about what it takes to move people, not just to agreement, but to action? Yeah. And I mean, I think that the point from, from what I just said before is not just to get people to agree, it's just to get them first to listen and to kind of sure. deeply think about what you're saying. Um, and then they can agree or disagree. But as you say, well, let's say you had convinced someone, now you want them to act. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a very good question. And it's a bit of a complex question. Um, there is research um, in neuroscience that suggests that action is very much related to anticipation of something rewarding, while inaction is related to anticipation of punishment. So let me explain. If you want to get people to act, usually what you do is either you promise them carrots of a sort, right? Some kind of reward. Things like, oh, if you go to the gym, you will get healthier. Or if you vote for me, you make, you're going to make your, your life better and the country better, right? That's, that's kind of a common thing in politics. Um, or you can um, highlight the um, possible punishments. Right, the sticks. So you could say, well, if you 
don't go to the gym, you'll become fat. Or if you don't go out and vote, well, your voice is not going to be heard. And your life, you know, the country may not be going in the right direction. So it's usually either carrots or sticks. And the question is, when do you want to use carrots and when do you want to use sticks? And as I said, there's some research that suggests that, well, we know that the way the brain works is that when we anticipate something good, a go signal is activated in reward regions in the brain, deep in the brain. And that signal then goes up to our motor regions and makes action more likely. And the reason this is, is that in order to get the good stuff in life, whether it's a chocolate cake or love or promotion, we usually need to act. We need to move forward. We need to do something. And so her brain has evolved in that kind of environment where um, expecting something good is related to action. However, to avoid the bad stuff in life, whether it's um, poison or deep waters or untrustworthy people, we often, not always, but often we need not to do anything. We need to stay away, just sit there and not act, right? Avoid. And so our brain has evolved in that kind of environment. And when we anticipate something bad, a no-go signal is activated deep in our brain in reward regions, and it goes up to our motor system and inhibits action. That doesn't mean that we can't get, you know, overcome this and, and take an action even in order to avoid something bad, but that's the, the initial trigger. So we expect something bad and we actually freeze. The first, first reaction is often to freeze. And so what this suggests is that if you want someone to do something, if you want them to go out and act and vote, then often rewards, you know, promising, well, it's going to make our country better, your life better, um, is the way to go. But if you want someone not to do something, to stay at home, for example, and not to vote, um, perhaps threatening with, with something negative um, is, is the right approach. Um, but as I said, it's a little bit complex. Behavior is not like physics. Sure. Um, it's, not, it's not gravity. It's not black and white. It's gray. And there's a lot of factors influencing our behavior and, we, and determining the action at the end. And another factor that matters is what kind of mental state are we already in? So our very recent research, um, which is described in the book as well, is that when you are under stress, you're actually more likely to encode negative information. But when you're relaxed, you're more likely to encode positive information. Um, so our, my, my first book, The Optimism Bias, talks a lot about the fact that people are overly optimistic. They, don't, they underestimate the risks out there, and um, they're less likely to take in negative information and warnings and more likely to listen to, to good information that promises good stuff. But that is not true when you're stressed. When you stress, what we find is that immediately people start to focus on the negative information and they're hypervigilant to any kind of bad news. Um, we did this in the lab where we brought people in and we told them that they're going to have to give um, a speech, a surprise on a surprise topic in front of all the other people and we're going to judge them, we're going to videotape it and we're going to put it on YouTube and they oh, become wow. really, really stressed. <laughs> yeah. and, then, and then we gave them... Um, we give them statistics about different violent probabilities of violent acts and medical conditions and so on. Now, some of these uh, statistics were quite good. They, they suggested that actually their likelihood of suffering an illness, let's say Alzheimer's, is much less than they thought. So it's good news. And some of these statistics were bad news. They were suggesting that some bad things are more likely to happen than they thought, like cancer or car accidents, for example. And then we, we looked what happened to their beliefs. We asked them to estimate their own likelihood of having all these experiences given the information that we gave them. Now, when they were not stressed before the stress manipulation, they learned more from good news and bad news. But after the stress manipulation, their ability to learn from bad news went up um, and it just became better. 
So if you think about it, this is probably what happens after public stressful events. So for example, after market collapse or terrorist attacks, even if a terrorist attack is halfway around the world, people get very, very stressed. And this stress automatically makes them attend to negative information in the media. They take in that information, which makes them much more pessimistic right? And more likely to kind of focus on how things can get worse. So if you're in a situation where people are already stressed, then it is, and, and that goes back to the Donald Trump example that we had in the beginning, where he was talking to, you know, if he was talking to me as a parent with an eight-week-old child, I was already stressed. So this kind of hearing how the possibility of my child getting ill, it's bad news, and it's something I was attending to because I was under mental stress already, right? So if people are already under stress, then some negative messages can can be attended to quite well. And and that, it seems to me, relates to a, a pretty significant stressor you talk about in the book called, uh, well, about uh, losing control. I mean, and when you talked, mm-hmm. when you wrote about that, what I immediately thought of was, what was President Trump and make America great again? And it seemed like that that was a message that really resonated with older white conservative males. I mean, and of course, that's a group that's been in charge of everything just about forever, but that's changing a little bit now. And it's pretty clear that that's a group that's mm-hmm. feeling sort of stressed. And so I guess that would kind of be all part of a piece for what you're saying then. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, the needs to take that control was probably a factor both with the um, elections here and Brexit in the UK, where people felt, um, of a certain, you know, certain populations felt that they had to take back control and change something, right? Um, and a way to do that is to vote for the less likely uh, candidate or for the less likely um, view, um, Brexit in the UK. And by doing that, I think people um, felt that they gained some control. Absolutely. And we know that control is is one of the most important um, factors in determining our action and determining our well-being. When we feel we have control, when we feel we have agency, we tend to be healthier. We tend to um, be mentally and physically healthier. And it's actually um, coded in the brain as a reward in and of itself. Control and agency is coded as, as a reward. And we like to make choices partially because it gives us a sense of control and a, a sense of choice. Um, and that is, is certainly something that plays a factor in politics. Um, any kind of message that gives agency back to the people. So it sounds like if you want to run a really good negative campaign, first you get people really scared, make them feel like things are crazy and out of control, and then launch a bunch of negative attacks against your opponent. And that might actually be somewhat effective. Yes, perhaps. But I do think also that, um, I mean, it is true that, first of all, at the time that that, um, Donald Trump was rising, it was a time of, of stress for many reasons. Um, there was some, uh, there was terrorist attacks and other things, um, but in some ways, his message was an optimistic one to um, the people who believed in it. Right, his message is "Make America Great Great Again." So it's actually a suggestion that yes, you can make a difference, and you can make a difference to the better. Um, and it's not people always say it's, it's a fear campaign, and then there's some there's some definitely some truth in that, but it was. Um, 
also suggesting what the solution is, right? And suggesting that there's a solution that, that will make things better. So in some ways it was um, optimistic. And there's many um, studies showing that political campaigns that have kind of an optimistic message to them are, are usually quite powerful. Well, you know, that, that, that... And I mean, most campaigns have a, have an optimistic message. I mean, it's not, not unusual, of course. No, that's really interesting that you mentioned that because I'd never thought about Donald Trump's campaign message as, as optimistic in that sense, but I guess that's probably because I'm coming from a point of view where yeah. a lot of the changes in society are happening. That those are things that I've been cheering on. And so that, that's interesting yeah. how my own pre-existing bias sort of influenced how I saw his message. So I guess I'm not, I guess I'm somehow not immune to this sort of thing. Uh, One thing I wanted to ask you about, you you had a couple of great headers in the book. Uh, At one point you say, some information is like sex and plum pie. (laughs) So you absolutely need to explain that to people. (laughs) Yeah. So one thing that I'm extremely interested in is why do people want information? Why are they seeking information? How are they making decisions? What it is that they want to know and what it is that they don't want to know as well. Because um, a lot of information that that we seek out um, every day, you know, whether it's on social media or just websites, it's not necessarily super useful for us. We just do it because it's knowledge, and a lot of, I mean, people study a lot of things for for knowledge per se. And this is kind of um, for neuroscientists was a little bit of a puzzle. Why would people do that? Um, and there is research. The first, actually, the first few studies came from. Um, research on monkeys. And what it showed is that monkeys want to know, want to get information, even if they can't use this information to do anything. For example, they wanted to know um, how much water they're going to get in a few hours. They just wanted to know in advance, even if they, in a few seconds, for example, even if they can do anything with it. And what these researchers found is that the opportunity to gain knowledge was coded in the brain using the same algorithm and the same neural structures as primary rewards, which are things like water and food and sex. So the opportunity to gain knowledge is coded in the brain as if it is food, things that we need for survival. And if you think about it that way, well, it's not surprising that we try to gain knowledge, right? If, if our brain is treating knowledge as food and water, things that we need for survival, when, well, it's not surprising that we spend so much time trying to gain information and knowledge. Um, but the funny, the interesting thing that after reading those studies in monkeys, the interesting thing that, that kind of came to me was, well, this is true. We want information a lot, but sometimes we don't want information. Sometimes we want to avoid information. A great example is medical tests. Um, for example, if I ask all your, your, everyone that's listening now, if they could vote, and I ask them, um, I can give you now information about your genetic predisposition to all forms of cancer. Who here wants to know? So I can tell you that my colleague Cass Sunstein did this on MTurk with 400 um, individuals participating, and he found that about 60% wanted to know and 40% didn't want to know. I have since done that many times when giving talks, and that number is usually correct. So a bit more than half say, yes, I want to know. And sometimes there are some groups where there was only one person who wanted to know whether they have a genetic disposition. But the, the point of this is, is that you could actually, that's actually useful information, right? I mean, if I told um, someone that they have the Barca gene that makes you um, vulnerable to breast cancer, well, there's something that you can do about it, 
right? Um, but yet, you know, just under half of the people actually don't want the information. They don't want to know. And this has actually been shown in an actual study where 349 women, uh, they took uh, samples and they actually looked at the, at the the genes and they said, well, we know whether you have the BRCA gene or not. Who here wants to know? And again, about 40% just did refuse to know. And so this brings to light another category of what determines whether you want to know or not, which is how is it going to affect you emotionally, right? The effective um, uh, consequence. Because if I were to tell you that you have a gene that makes you predisposed to, to brain cancer, well, that's going to cause anxiety and fear, right? This is something that you want to avoid. If I were to tell you that your gene suggests that you have, um, you're resistant to all sorts of cancer, well, that would create positive affect. You'll feel good. This is something that you want to approach. And so a determined, one of the, one of the determinants of why we want information and what type of information is how is it going to make us feel. So we try to sometimes avoid information that we fear can have a negative effect on our on our psychological well-being, um, and we approach information that we think can make us feel good. Um, there's a great study looking at when people log into their bank accounts to check on their, their stocks, and it shows that when the market is going up, people think, oh, I probably got you know lots of money now, and they log in a lot. On their, to their bank accounts to check. When the market is going down, they think, oh, I probably lost money, and actually they avoid, avoid checking. But this is true as long as negative information can reasonably be avoided. So when there's real, when the market really collapsed, that's when people started logging on frantically, you know, trying to, to do something about it. That, um, that's, but, that's really yeah. fascinating to me because, I, you know, when you first brought this up, I thought, well, if it's something that I don't have any control over, really, like, you know, Alzheimer's disease or something, I'd say, you know, I no point in me knowing. But what you're saying is even if people can know and can take steps that would almost certainly, in some cases, make them live longer, that short-term psychological distress is much more of a factor than their long-term, well, living even, maybe. Yeah, and we know that for the HIV as well. A lot of people um, who are at risk decide not to get tested, um, even even though there there's now you know um, treatment that that could help. Um, yeah, so that that's a really important factor, and and it comes into politics as well. I mean, sometimes we we don't want to know what's going on in the world because we don't have want to have the negative aspect. I mean, I. I I know when I, I actually, so I grew up in Israel and, and there people always, you know, politics is, 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 is major. It has been something that people talk about a lot and it can create quite a lot of anxiety and stress. And actually there was some kind of relief when I, when I left to, to the U.S. many years ago to do my PhD to not know. So I actually for some, from some time not, made sure not to log in and not to read the news in order to not want, know what's going on because I didn't want, you know, the anxiety and the stress. Of course, it's a bit different because I couldn't do anything about it, so it's not instrumental. Um, but it was in order to uh, manipulate my effective state. Yeah. You know, another thing I wanted to ask you about is in the book, you discuss the wisdom of crowds. And it's kind of been a thing since, God, I don't know how long ago, that James Surowiecki did, wrote that book. And, you know, that our tendency to basically do or take cues from people around us and so forth. And, and in the book, you say that in some situations, this makes sense, but maybe not so much in others. And, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about when this seems to be a smart move and when not so much. 
Yeah, so in in the book, The Wisdom of Crowds, he does talk about the different uh, situations where the crowd is wise and different situations where probably not. Um, But I think the message that was, um, you know, kind of got, that people got from from the book, um, just from, you know, the press and so on, is that, oh, the crowd is wise, and for most things, we should just ask lots of lots of people what they think, um, and the majority is probably going to be correct. And that is true only in very limited circumstances. And the reason that believing otherwise is quite dangerous is because what happened was people start going to, on Facebook asking for medical advice, right? From their friends. I mean, this is very common. I remember actually watching, um, so I was, I was giving a TED talk in uh, 2012 and one of the other people that were giving a TED talk was talking about the wisdom of crowds. And he was giving this example of, oh, there's a, there's a woman and his, her child was sick and she didn't, and she put, um, and she asked about it on Facebook. And yes, someone uh, identified the correct illness and, and that saved her child. And that's a good good story with a good outcome, but it could easily go the other way, right? If you just ask people about something and someone say, oh, why don't you try this medication or that medication? Yeah. And, you know, you don't want to go in that direction. And so it's quite that dangerous to believe that you could just ask a crowd and get the right answer. And science shows that, that you know, the crowd is, is not always wise. So when is it especially not wise? Well, first of all, it's especially not wise when the different people are not independent from each other when their views are not independent. So, for example, if you go on online on a website and ask a question, um, the first person responds, right, with their opinion. Let's say you're asking about something, um, let's say even a preference, okay? Let's say you're asking, oh, what movie should I watch this this week or this weekend, what do you recommend? And so one of your friends on Facebook goes, you know, answers, suggesting um, a movie of their choice. Um, And then the next person already sees this answer, right, of one of your friends, and now they're biased, right? So now they're biased to think about this movie that the other person suggested, and they're more likely to recommend it as well. And though this happens a few times, and now even if I don't like the movie, well, I'm not going to be, you know, the the different person here, so I'm, I'm probably not going to reply at all. The point is that a lot of time people interact, and once they interact, they influence each other, right? And so a certain view can be... Um, taken up by many people, not because necessarily that's their view, just because they were influenced by other people. And that's that's a definite case where the crowd is not necessarily wise. Um, and this happens a lot. I mean, ratings on Amazon, for example, there's a study showing that, um, a study by uh, people who were at NYU at the time, they manipulated the first ratings of um something uh, like, let, let's say it was a product. It wasn't, but let's say a product. They, they manipulated the first rating of the product to either be very, very positive or very, very negative. And then they looked at all the ratings that came after, and they found that if they put the first rating to be very positive, the average ratings after that would, would be 33% more positive than if they hadn't put that first rating to be positive. And if they put the first rating to be negative, the average ratings after that would be 25% more likely to be negative. Um, so that's, that's an example where the crowd can be not so wise. Um, the other example is, the other instance is when we are already biased. So there's some, um, 
there's some instances where humans are, are biased. This is how we make judgments and decision-making is biased in certain ways. So, for example, let's take my favorite example, which is optimism bias, where people tend to be overly optimistic um, about many um, things. So if you take a group of people and you ask them to um, predict, for example, how much the the market will go up or something, it's likely that most people will be slightly optimistic. And then you take many of these people who are slightly optimistic because that's how human nature is, and you put them together, you get a crowd that on average is quite optimistic. And so they're not necessarily giving you the correct answer, they're giving you a slightly biased answer. So if you don't have independence and if you're asking a question by which people are naturally biased, then you have a real problem with the, with the wisdom of crowds. You know, I, well, let me ask you about sort of the, the flip side of that. Uh, people who seem to be constitutionally contrarian, I, I'm sort of like this, uh, you know, someone who zigs when everyone else is zagging, that sort of thing. I mean, do, do people, well, like me, I guess, have some sort of weird, unusual mental machinery that's kind of making us go look at what the crowd is saying and saying, oh, I don't want to do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I know I know exactly where you're coming from. And yeah, so some people tend to be more uh, uh, conformist, and, and some people tend to be more nonconformist, uh, more independent. Um, and there's, you know, different reasons, both nature and nurture, that will make us one way or, or the other. But I think there's also a question of, um, two questions. Well, one, who are we conforming to? So you could, you might have instances where, you think, well, the public at large thinks X, but my little circle thinks Y. Ah, okay. Right? So you may be conforming to some group that is maybe smaller, but closer to you, more important to you. Right. Um, and it could be, I mean, there could also be situations where you think, well, I know better. Um, and so <laughs> if I know, but if I'm, if I'm different and unique, I'm, I'm going to have different opinions. And, and that is especially true on, on some issues. So a lot of people would have, um, different opinions on, on some issues, but be quite, you know, mainstream on others. So you might, you know, dress quite well, mainstream and have like mainstream taste in, in food or movies or whatever. But the thing that you're specialize in politics, for example, um, you might have um, views that are not mainstream. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. You know, I'm, there, I, I have this weird fantasy. Uh, one day that I will go in to- totally insane, run for Congress, and run on a totally positive campaign. I mean, I mean, not going negative on my opponent, not responding to attacks, just basically doing kind of like, well, my opponent and I both love America. We want what's best for the country, but we just differ in how we get there. Uh, is, that a, is that a doomed idea? <laughs> So again, it's, I think it's not black and white, and there's a lot of different factors to consider. On one hand, positive messages have quite an effect. On the other hand, I think the reason that you get somewhat negative campaigns in respect of how people react to the other side is that people need to distinguish themselves. I don't mean the candidate. I mean the people who are voting, right? Um, we kind of have a, a need to be within a group. And if there isn't another group... Ah, to compare ourselves to, then maybe we don't feel this connection, right? I I think the reason that people have put themselves in groups that they need these smaller groups to feel connected to, and in order to do that, they need to distinguish them from others. Right. Um, so tribalism being a very powerful type exactly. of thing. Yeah. 
Okay. Exactly. Okay. So maybe I won't go totally positive then. Uh, <laughs> maybe I mean, I, I, it's, it's a good, it would be a good experiment. Mostly sure. positive. Yeah, there we go. Um, just one final question for you. Aside from reading your book, which I thought was great, I would definitely recommend it to listeners. Um, what advice do you have pe- for people who don't just want to be you know, more effective persuaders, but who also want to do what they can to minimize their own cognitive biases that make them, well, you know, irrational and resistant to good, reasonable evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one one thing to do um, is, for example, the, the fact that we tend to have like a confirmation bias and we tend to listen only or mostly to people who think less like us and so on. There's things that we could actually do on, on social media and when looking for information online. Um, For example, maybe we could start following people who are on the other side, which we still respect, but have different views. So we can get that information as well. So, because there's, otherwise there's a confirmation bias in how we seek information, right? So it's good to actively try to get information from the other side. There's actually um, some tools, some websites that you could sign up to and they will do it for you. They will add um, these feeds. when you look at things, when you just Google things even, um, it is important to remember that Google will spit back um, information based on your prior searches, based on your location. So the information that you're getting is already selected for you in certain ways. And so in order to get information that's not biased in that way, you want to turn off a lot of these um, functions. So turn off history, turn off geography in order to to get information that's not necessarily selective and not biased in that way. Um, So that's the type of things that we could relatively easily do, at least on every day when we we try to find information. Well, and that that's, that kind of goes right in line with what I've been telling people for a while. So I guess that triggers my confirmation bias, and I could say my advice backed by science now. And so so with that great advice, which I absolutely agree with, we will close. Uh, Tally Sherrod, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Before you go, I've got a weird political fact of the week for you. But before I get to that, I want to thank everyone who's subscribed to the show. And if you haven't, I hope you will consider subscribing. It helps out a lot. What also helps is if you can share the show on social media with your friends, acquaintances, enemies, nemesises, nemesises, nemesis, I don't know. You, you get the idea. Word of mouth, very helpful. Also, it's helpful if you could post a review and the rating of the show on iTunes. If you want to get in touch with me, you can at mike at politicsplus.us. The show's website is politicsplus.us. Okay, now for my weird political fact of the week. Apparently, Abraham Lincoln was quite the wrestler. Uh, The story goes he was defeated only one time in around 300 matches. And not only was he a pretty good wrestler. I'd say 301's an impressive record. He also wasn't above talking a little smack in the ring. According to one biography, after he defeated an opponent one time, he looked out at the crowd and yelled, I'm the big buck of this lick. If any of you want to try it, come on and wet your horns. Apparently, nobody took him up on that offer. I'll be back with a new interview next week. I hope you'll join me.